This is the story of how reggae music brought forth this episode's guest. A young brunette from the American Midwest somehow found the tiny Caribbean island of Anguilla and decided to vacation there. Her introduction to reggae music would lead her to a local DJ, whom she would eventually fall in love with. That love gave the world Vanessa Croft. Vanessa was raised between the slow pace of the island and the bustling streets of Tinseltown. A chance meeting at a Kinkos, yes, it was the 80s, would propel her into the entertainment industry, where she would become a career actor at a tender age. After years of balancing music videos with the likes of Michael Jackson and movies with David Hasselhoff and the Olsen twins, Vanessa's mother decided that she and a teenaged Vanessa would move back to Anguilla. With few friends and an American accent, she began to carve out her new life and explore how she would use her talents and flair for the arts in her new environment. Today, she is a mother of two and an English teacher. In this interview, Vanessa reflects on her childhood in Hollywood and memories of her teens. But her story is not yet done. She discusses her upcoming novels and a bevy of awesome tips for aspiring writers. From the boulevards of L.A. to the beaches of Anguilla, this is the story, thus far, of Vanessa Croft, writer, actor, educator, and poet. I am Crispin Brooks. And this is Planet 30. She's a writer, content creator, poet, and educator. Vanessa Croft, welcome to Planet 30. Hey, Kristen. Thanks. Ah, pleasure, pleasure having you here. <laughs> It's great to be here. Tell tell me about your background, your mom, your dad. You have an interesting story. Um, yeah, I guess it would be interesting. Sometimes when I retell it, I realize it sounds interesting. Um, my mom, she's from the Midwest in America, and she came down to Anguilla on vacation back in the early 80s and heard reggae music for the first time on the beach in Sandy Ground at what would become Jono's as we know it today. At the time, it was not at all like what we know it today. And um, so she heard reggae music. She'd never heard it before. She asked where she could get a record, and they put her in the direction of this guy who made mixtapes, and his name was Zambezi, and that's my dad. And, um, yeah, so my mom met my dad, and she did not go back to the States. (laughs) Music uniting the people. I guess so. I guess so. And I guess also, you know, early forays into diversity because when you reflect on it it's like sometimes when you're met with something from a different culture and you want to embrace it you know so and that was kind of what it was she wanted to know more about that music she never heard it before she wanted to know more about just the culture of the west indies and my mom is a very adventurous person so her staying in anguilla randomly like that that is so in character i mean that's something that i think a lot of people they don't have the courage or the maybe like self-awareness to make those kind of steps but she did and so yeah I mean we she did go back to the states though when when I was little and then we were kind of back and forth between America and Anguilla for the majority of my childhood we we definitely came here like once a year and there were a few years where we lived here straight through 
but we didn't come back permanently until 1998. So sort of a how Stella got her groove back situation. Oh, God. <laughs> These are my parents we're talking about, okay? Um, but yeah, you know what? Like, it really, it is kind of kind of a cliche story. White chick comes on vacation and meets black Rasta guy. And that's why it's funny. Because when I tell it back, it, it does sound like it could just be a plot of, of a film. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> so, Vanessa, what was it like growing up as a kid in L.A.? Well, okay, so I, I went to L.A. when I was about six, I think, or seven. Six or seven. But before that, we were in Oregon, because that's where my mom was living when she came to Anguilla. And um, when she was pregnant with me, she, she did go back, and I was born in America, because at the time, you know, Cottage Hospital... I think that for a woman from the States who's kind of was used to that type of medical care, I think she was a little overwhelmed with the idea of having a baby at, at Cottage Hospital, given how the, just the way, you know, the way things were set up. And so she went back to the States to have me. And then we were there in Oregon. She had a house in Oregon. And so I was in Oregon for six months until I got my first passport and then we came back down to Anguilla and I was here for a couple years you know before we moved back permanently to the states so when we did move back we were in Oregon and that I mean to me Oregon is almost as beautiful as Anguilla just in a completely different way we lived in a coastal town called Florence and it's a little fishing village it's a really small spot not a lot of people know about it not a lot of diversity there I know that it was kind of a like a unique thing for her to have this mixed baby. And that was something that I was aware of. She did tell me when, when I was little that people actually came to see what I came out looking like, which is so weird. But in the 80s, you know, there weren't a lot of mixed kids, really, especially in Florence, Oregon. And we moved to L.A. when I was probably in, like, first grade so that... Just a new experience. Like like I said, my mom is that kind of person. She's sort of like a rolling stone. And so we went to L.A. And then we were in L.A. for a very long time. And we lived... We were there. We were in L.A. for the Rodney King riots, actually. Which I guess would be something relevant to point out now, given the current situation in America. So that was something that also kind of shaped my perspective on the world especially because I was biracial and I was aware that I was biracial. And then I, I was aware, I do remember my mom telling me about the riots and what was happening. Cause you know, you're a little kid and like people are lighting shit on fire. So it's like, you're, you want to know what's going on. And she told me that the police beat a black man and that it was wrong. And that, you know, people were protesting against that. That's basically what she said to me. I was really little. And, um, and we left the city, actually. We left um, where we lived because we lived, like, in West Hollywood. And we moved to the suburbs for that period of time to live with my mom's friend and her family because it was safer. Because, the, I mean, like, where we were was, like, dissolving into absolute... It was not safe. So that was one significant thing. I think, obviously, the other significant thing about my childhood in LA would be that I was in the industry. The entertainment industry. Now you got the entertainment industry. Now you got discovered at a Kinkos and many people probably <laughs> don't even know what Kinkos is. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. So like 
telling this back is so wild because, I mean, there's just so many Easter eggs that point out the fact that, you know, the time, like, like the period. So Kinko's, Kinko's was, as you obviously know, but I'll say it for your listeners that might not know that you might need this. There was a period in time, <laughs> there was a period where you actually had to go somewhere else to make copies and fax things and it was a business center and you could go there and like use a computer you could make photocopies you could print things because people didn't have that stuff in their house and people didn't really have fax machines because at that point in time I mean you had to have like two phone lines if you had a fax machine because you know you'd have it like plugged in so people didn't really have that so you would go to Kinko's to do that and my mom was in Kinko's to make some copies or something or whatever and, um, yeah, somebody saw me and I think I was, I was little, you know, and they were like, oh, she's really cute. Have you thought about getting her in the biz? Like, cause that's like what you call it in LA. And, um, my mom had not given any thought to, to putting me in the business. And, um, so she, she listened, you know, and they were like, no, you know, that little girl needs an agent because she's really unique. And that was basically what it was. And then. I got an agent. I was with Cunningham S. Scott Dapini, and I was also with um, with Rachel Epstein, who's now Rachel Epstein Greenwald, and actually a really close family friend still. She's, like, one of the people that was there my whole life. Um, her husband is Todd Greenwald, who wrote many things that everybody probably knows about. And, um, and now her son actually just started a band called Lovely the Band. And that's pretty much gaining a lot of traction as well. So Rachel, Rachel was my manager and she was kind of very instrumental in guiding my mother through the process of having a child actor, which I think my second audition I ever went on, I booked and it was, I'm pretty sure, I hope I have my memories lined up, but I'm pretty sure that that was my first job. It was a Dole commercial for Dole fruit. And it was just like these like giant, like styrofoam foam fruit things and there was a cow for whatever reason <laughs> like it was really weird I'm just trying <laughs> I'm just trying to remember it like on my own you know without calling my mom to be like hey mom do you remember like why there was a cow but there was a cow and I, I do remember that and I was like six years old and that was my first job and then one of my other early jobs was the black or white music video with Michael Jackson. Big deal. Yeah, I guess so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of people uh, knew you from that video, and that kind of got you other gigs. So dull commercials and Michael Jackson videos. What was your day-to-day -day like as a child actor? Um. All right, so day-to-day. -day. Well, in the beginning, it wasn't so hectic because, again... I mean, you know, there wasn't the internet and social media, so it was really and truly someone calls your agent, they say that this is the, the project we're working on, this is the type of person that we're looking for, and you know, there were like agencies that specialize in kids, that specialize in adults, there's agencies that do both, and agencies would like pick you, it's not like you just go in there and you're like, hey, you're my agent, like you would actually have to kind of do like a casting for them, for even for them to see if they if they thought that you worked with their vision or even if they had like too many other kids that already looked like you. So they don't want to be shopping out like the same product. Cause it is kind of like that. Like it is like merchandise. Um, so 
day to day, it would be in the beginning that your agent might call or page you and um, tell you, like, we have something that we think Vanessa would be good for. So, like, for example, there was a movie called The Rising Sun that I got so many callbacks for. I read for that, like, so many times. And in the end, they went with a different girl because they decided that they wanted the character to be older. So that would be part of it. I mean, you kind of learn how to deal with that that disappointment because when you get a callback, so you go on an audition and, and they like you, and then they do like a callback. So they when they do the callback, they bring back all the people that they liked and they let them meet like more of the people that are instrumental in the project, like different producers and stuff. And um, when you get a, a third or a fourth callback, that it's like you're almost to the point where you're like, okay, yeah, I, I booked this. Like this is going to be a project I'm working on. So with I remember with that, again, like I said, you know, I was a kid, so my memory is like kid memory. But that one stuck out to me because I was very disappointed when I didn't book it because I had gotten so far up with like so many callbacks. I thought for sure that I was going to be working on this film. But they then that's the kind of stuff that can happen. People like they decide, all right, no, we don't want this character to be young. We want it to be something else. Like the same thing with um, like interview with a vampire. That movie came out around that time too. And when we auditioned for that, they wanted the character to be younger. But then after they reevaluated it and they looked at the kind of stuff that they had that character doing and they felt like audiences would be more comfortable with an older girl than a younger one because it was kind of sexual. So those are like kind of things that I think as a child, when I, now that I have my own kids and I, I look at it, you know, when you're eight or nine and you're, it's it's just like a lot of different processes to kind of understand. So in the beginning, I wasn't booking like tons and tons of stuff because I was just starting out. But as it got further in, like when I was like in maybe like fifth grade, it would be to the point like, yeah, fourth or fifth grade. It would get to the point where you're like never in school. You don't get to go to parties. You don't get to like sleep over because you're either at an audition or you're you're at a job. And you're going like with a tutor on the set for your education because they have rules about that and um, not really doing a lot of stuff like with your class. So when I was in sixth grade, my mom pulled me out of school and homeschooled me because I was working so much that it just made more sense for me to do that than to just be like missing school all the time. So that was kind of what it was like as a kid. I feel I also feel that it's very superficial and. Um, like, I remember when I lost my front teeth, that was a problem because people don't want toothless kids in, like, their their magazines and stuff. And then, um, so you get this thing called a flipper, which is basically, like, a piece of bridge work that is, like, fake teeth that you replace your teeth that you lost with that so that it doesn't change you. Like, and, and, and when you think about things like that, it's just, I mean, like, it's kind of weird, you know, to have, to have kids living that kind of lifestyle. And I feel like that's probably what started to play on my mom as well. Cause my childhood was not normal at all because it was really just like working image, and, image, image. Yeah. Image. Like I couldn't sometimes do certain things cause it, it would like mess up my hair and I needed my hair to be a certain way for a job. Or I remember like 
because, you know, I was with like a single mom. We weren't super wealthy or anything. And sometimes when you have an audition, they ask you to dress a certain way so that they can, I guess, kind of have you like imaged as the character. And sometimes we would like go and buy like whole new outfits for me to wear to these auditions. And I mean, it's just, it's just very surreal, especially as a mother now watching my own kids and having their childhood experience. That was not my childhood experience. It wasn't so carefree and it wasn't so laid back because, you know, you wore makeup and you learned how to pretend, but in a big way. And I think that that probably kind of shaped me as a person now, now that I'm an adult. Tell us about some of the other gigs that you got, um, you know, as you as you developed as an actor. What are some of the other productions that you worked on? Um, I used to do a lot of commercial and print. And um, I worked with a lot of European companies, especially as I got older, because we did move to Miami. And Miami is kind of more of a hub for, for modeling than for film. Obviously, L.A. is film. So when we were in Miami, I worked a lot with a a bunch of different like European and Australian publications. Like they fly out to the States to shoot, um, Vogue Bambini, which is like uh, Vogue, but I don't even know if that's still in print. It's like Vogue for kids in terms of fashion, lots of European fashion brands. Um, the regular American stuff too, like Target, Sears, JC Penney's, Bloomingdale's, Macy's, like that kind of stuff. And, um, you have to be careful too. the type, of jobs you take because when people look at your your resume they want to see that you've worked with decent brands they don't want to see that you're just taking like anything that comes your way so i guess that would be another function of your your manager and your agent too to kind of filter that up um when i was in la i did what did i do um juicy juice like the squeeze squeeze it that was what it was called it was like this you remember Squeeze It, Juice? I do, I do. <laughs> do they even still make that? I, I have no clue. They were like <laughs> blue and purple and red. Yes, it was like blue. And we had to fly out to Colorado to shoot that. And, um, which was cool because I remember that we got to go to the, like, like my mom and a couple of the other moms when we weren't shooting, we went to the Denver Mint and got to see like how money was made. That was just like a random memory that I just now had as I said that. Um, yeah, and then I did, oh, I did, um, I did this Barbie commercial that was like a, a Pepsi Barbie, and then because I did that, I could not work with, like, Coca-Cola companies for, like, a year, because that's also how it works, because, you know, you don't want, like, the face of someone on, like, one brand, and then they're on another brand, and, um... It's delicate balance. Yeah. And again, those are things that like your manager and your agent would handle. And at some point, my mom became my manager because like once she kind of understood the industry enough, she became my manager. So she was like, you know, working all that stuff out. Um, What else did I do? Oh, well, obviously the Michael Jackson video, Simply Red video, um, a Mary-Kate and Ashley episode of their like show. Stick a pin in that. A couple of uh, years ago, somebody found a Mary-Kate and Ashley home movie. FML. And, yeah. And, and, and they, they decided to put, they decided to slow the tape down, first of all. And For whatever reason. Like, I don't understand people on the internet, honestly. And they, and they made it trippy as if you guys were on drugs or something. Yeah. 
and yep. it resurfaced, and I understand some of your students discovered it. They did, and the thing is, is that I think they discovered it by accident, because the video, like, just clippets of it had gone kind of viral, and I think they saw it, and they were like, that is my teacher, and they brought it to school, and they asked me, and that was the first time I saw it, and then... A few months after that, too, I got a call from a magazine and they wanted to interview me about my role in that. Because, you know, now looking back at it, they really stereotyped the black girl on that. And they had her be the one that had all the cool music and knew the cool dances and had the fried chicken. And it's like, now you're looking at it like, what kind of racist shit is this? But at the time... I, no one thought that. And I, I know that because I know my mom would have never let me be associated with something that was, was like kind of pigeonholed like that. And which is what I told that other magazine. I was like, it, we didn't think it was racist at the time. And now I look at it and I'm like, oh my God. Like, of course they had the black character be that one. But yeah, that project was really fun, actually. That was a really great project because, um, like, the Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen machine in the 90s was huge. Humongous. It was huge. And you, and did, and you did more than one video with them, didn't you? Um, well, we did the one shoot. I think it might have been split into two of the videos because they used to come out, like, on VHS, like, these things that, like, episodes of the um, You're Invited to. Yes. Like, that was kind of what yes. it was. Yeah. And, um, but, yeah, we did that, and it was cool. Working with them was great because... Working on a set that's kind of catered to having kids there was always more fun because, like, the craft services were always things that you wanted to eat. They would have, like, the, the, like, the down room would be cool and stuff in your trailer would be neat. And, like, they would have more kid-centered makeup artists, so they would be more gentle and not, like, jabbing you in the eyeball with the liner. So it was, like, it was fun. But I would say um, it might have been one of my – oh, you know what? No, that was not my favorite project. My favorite project was working for a photo shoot for a movie that came out called uh, The Big Green, I think was what it was called. It was like a soccer movie, and we did the poster for the movie, and that was a fun shoot because we had to get, like, blasted with mud, and it was so cool, and as a kid, like that was like just amazing that you just got to be dirty and <laughs> we were just covered in mud. I'm sure you could find that poster too. Cause it was like, that was the poster that they put up on the side of the, of the production studios. And that was what they put out like in the bus stops and whatever to advertise the film. And like when it was in theaters, it was up. So, because another kind of spoiler for people, sometimes when, when movies make posters and advertisement for the film, they don't use the real actors because that would just be more costly. So a lot of those movie posters that you see that don't have the actor themselves on it, maybe it's like a scene or something from the movie, a lot of times that's just like other actors that they hired afterwards to do. And that was what this was. And that was a fun one. There was another one for, for um, Windows. When Windows first came out, Windows 95, they had ads, and I, I did a shoot with them too, and that was a nice one. As in Microsoft but, I mean, Windows. Yeah, Microsoft Windows 95. <laughs> like, <laughs> Game changer. But, uh, so crazy, yeah. And I actually have like some of those, um, some of that stuff still. I found it the other day. 
but I mean, geez, Crispin, there were so many projects. Like the ones that are popping into my head are the ones where something instrumental happened on set that just I remember. But um, it's just like crazy amount of things. But you all, you also and um, you did also did voiceovers for feature feature films as well, and you actually yeah. also appeared in in one or two feature films. I did. Um, like a Cheech and Chong film, which Cheech and Chong were another huge machine in the nineties. And, um, yeah, I was in, I was in a few feature films. I did do a lot of voiceover work. Voiceover work is really great because it's quick. And if you're like, if you're a child actor and you're a good listener, then you'll do like voiceover work because you need kids that are going to kind of be fast. Like they don't want to be working with people that are taking too long to, to produce things. So yeah, I did do voiceover work for different things. Hmm. Do people still recognize you at all, other than the Mary Kate and Ashley in- incident? Do people recognize you uh, on social media, for example? Um, I have had some, but it was mainly because of the Mary Kate and Ashley thing, and then because I did that magazine interview, and then my name was there that they kind of like I guess googled me and they found me. Um, that was kind of funny, but no, because again, the internet. You know, it didn't exist at that time. Well, I guess it might have, but not how we know it. And um, it just wasn't like that. Like, I don't have people come and say, oh, you were in this, weren't you? Unless they already know and they've sought it out to go see. But I I don't have people recognize me. Hmm. Not for that, anyway. Now, as an adult, um, as an adult, an English teacher, <laughs> and as a writer... You mentioned that you you kind of like to compartmentalize that portion of your life. You don't want people to know that you were a child actor. And why is that? Because I think it kind of... It just kind of, like, affects things. I would rather be known for my accomplishments that I have made my, like, my own way as an adult in my career that I actually chose. Because I did not choose to be that. That was something that my mom chose for me. And it was something where I remember when I was like older, her asking, you know, do I still enjoy it? Is it something that I want to keep doing? But how can you ask someone that has been acting since they were like six when they're 12 if they like it? Of course they do. They don't know anything else. And I think that I, when people find out that I was a child actor, it affects the way they look at my body of work that I've produced now. And I feel like they don't take it as serious. And I think they don't take me as serious. And it just kind of like glosses everything over. Like people just want to ask me questions about that. And they don't want to ask me questions about the, the projects that I work on now and the things that I'm passionate about now once they find that out. Like there's probably a lot of people that don't even know that about me. They're going to hear this interview and then that's going to kind of open up that Pandora's box again. Because... I would rather people focus more on, on my talent as a writer, on my abilities as an educator. I've done like some really amazing things in those fields. And I think stuff that I did like 25 years ago, that, yes, it shaped me as a person. It shaped my view. It was during my coming of age. So obviously that would happen. But I do compartmentalize it. And I don't tell people. I mean, I really, I don't, I don't say it. And so if someone asks me, yes, I will tell them the truth. But a lot of times I'll just kind of skirt it over and try to change the subject because that was a period of my life that I feel it, it occurred and then it ended. But 
it's funny because I worked a couple jobs here in Anguilla as an adult. Um, one for this catalog for this um, clothing company called Vineyard Vines. And another, I think one time Pepsi shot a commercial out here. I did that. And then most recently worked on some stuff for the tourist board. And when the people came from away, as we say, from the States or wherever to shoot those things, they always remarked on how professional I was and how I was like, you know, not self-conscious and my scenes went real fast. And I could have definitely said to them, like, I've had a bunch of training in this, but I wouldn't because I don't want to bring that up. And I just laugh like, oh, really? Wow. Because I know what they're talking about. And I, because I know what the industry is and I know what it is to be in front of a camera and how to, you know, how to move and how to work with that and to use time efficiently. And that is something that I definitely can say I, I did learn growing up, that it's almost ingrained in me that I don't even think it'll ever go away. I like that answer. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, describe moving to the Caribbean as a teen, you know, after a whole life in Hollywood as a child. What was that culture shock like? Because it wasn't even to say that you were moving to Kingston, Jamaica or Port of Spain, Trinidad, <laughs> you know, a city in the Caribbean. You were moving to Anguilla, which had a different, totally different pace of life in the 1990s. Yes. All right. So aside from working in the industry as a child, I also traveled extensively with my mother through the English speaking Caribbean. And we would spend months at a time in various islands. So, and again, like I said, we would come to Anguilla sometimes like in the summers and whatnot. So it wasn't a huge thing. Like it wasn't like I had never been on a small island and then all of a sudden here I was. But the shock of it, I think, for me came from the fact that we were not going to leave again. And this was my life now. And that was hard. I spent a lot of time feeling upset about that move. I mean, Anguilla was just really slow. It was incredibly hard to infiltrate friendships that had been carved out in preschool. So here uh, I am. Yes, yes, the newcomer. Yeah, that was really, really difficult. And there's just, I even to this day, sometimes I do feel like an outsider, even now. Even though I went to high school here, I've been here for a long time, I still will never have that we've been friends since preschool thing with anyone. So there are people in Anguilla that I've known growing up when I used to visit in the summers and for like the few years that we did live here early on, but I'll never have that same bond with, with them the way they have with the people that were just always here. I was always the, the girl from America that came sometimes. And then in 98, I was here permanently. It was very difficult. There were no malls. There was no shopping. Um, it just, I mean, it's just, I can't even articulate it. It was hard. I was very upset. And I did not want to be here at all. For sure, I didn't want to be here. How did you eventually adjust? I mean, did it take friendships or did you do some self-searching? Uh, self how did that, how did you go about that? I think I just kind of came to terms with the fact that this is where I was. And this was what my life was going to be. And to go from being a child actor where you're like working and you're doing stuff and life is always really dynamic and then to come to Anguilla, where life is very mellow, that was probably very different. I 
I was when I was in the States in school. Um, I was a very avid writer and I did win a lot of national writing competitions like in like, well, state competitions in Florida and the national ones like for the whole 50 states. So when I came here and I didn't really have any of that other stuff going on, I started writing a lot more. And because I had always been writing, but yeah, being here, I definitely started writing more. Um, I don't really know when that changed. I guess when it changed for me was when I started to realize that Angola wasn't really that bad. It was just very slow and boring. And that <laughs> once I made some friends, it wasn't so hard. But I still didn't want to be here. Well, you know, after such a successful career as a, as a child actor, why then? Why sort of in the middle of your success you were just becoming a teenager there are tons of teenage movies out during the 90s you probably would have landed a uh, leading a lead role in one of them why that time why did your mom or was it a joint decision well uh choose to why did you guys choose to move at that time my mother thought that things were getting kind of i guess fast-paced and girls that I had been auditioning with and booking jobs with and um kind of like you know we're all the same age we're all going through they had started getting into some of like the heavier drug use because I think being a child actor nothing really impresses you so you just kind of I guess once you become a teenager and had I stayed perhaps that would have happened indeed I don't know but you're looking for something to impress you and what is going to impress you or entertain you when you're, like, working with celebrities and doing all this stuff all the time? So a lot of those girls started getting into drugs and stuff. And um, my mother saw what that was becoming. I think she also saw the potential of the hypersexuality of the industry when you become a teen. They kind of force you into some stuff that maybe you wouldn't experience otherwise. And... Um, she just decided that it was time for me to have a regular life. And that's why we came here. So, Vanessa, have any of the people that you auditioned with uh, made it in the business or continue? did they continue? Yes, actually, funnily enough. Um, a couple of them, for sure. And But most notably was that when... Okay, you remember that whole Jesse Smollett thing? Uh, yes. All right, when that happened, I don't watch. Was that show Power? Is that it? No, Empire. Empire. Okay, I don't watch. I don't watch either. So I didn't know that he was on that show. I did see him and his sister Journey. She used to audition for a lot of the same things as me. Um. So and they come from like a big family. There's like a whole bunch of them. Yeah, indeed. So every they, time they, they yeah. have a sitcom in the '90s as well as a family. Right. So they they I used to see them a lot. Um, in LA. So I didn't know that Jesse was on that. I did see Journey was in a movie, uh, The Great Debaters, and um, and that when I when I saw that I was like, oh wow, it's Journey. And then when that Jesse Smollett thing happened, when I saw his name in the headlines, I was like, what the hell? Cause I knew him, like I knew them back then, but we were just kids, you know? So I wouldn't say like to classify that as anything big, but that would be, I guess, an example of people that I auditioned with that I've kind of seen, you know, continue on with their career and, um, for whatever that's worth. Do you miss it at all? 
Yes, because now I think, yeah, I do miss it. Because I think sometimes, okay, that's the wrong answer. Sometimes I miss it. Sometimes I don't miss it. What I miss is I like being around motivated, creative people. And I feel like when you're in the industry, that is all you're, you're feeling that energy. And it's like some kind of lifeblood. And sometimes when I'm here in Anguilla, it can feel very stymied. It can feel like you kind of have to search out those creatives. And I'm like, of course we have creatives in Anguilla, but we have, we have some creatives in Anguilla that it's almost like a hamster wheel that they might be on. That's not the kind of energy that I want to surround myself with. Like, so I do miss those opportunities. Um, and I do miss that fast pacedness sometimes. Then other times I enjoy days like today where I kind of get up and I have like things I have to do today, but then I also have things I don't have to do today. And when you're in the industry, it's like you have things you have to do every day. And so, yeah, I like that. Being raised by a photographer uh, slash artist, how did that shape your view of the world around you? I think that that made me very aware of the world around me and it made me very aware of how to find art in everything because you just grow up with this person always pointing things out to you. Like, look at those water droplets on that leaf and how would that look if we got closer to them? Or, you know, hold this up to the light and look at how that's falling across your face. So it makes you experience the world in a very delicate way because you're just always seeing the lines, the shapes, the colors, the things that are creating art around you because that is what my mother is always seeing. And growing up with someone just instructing you to find that all the time, it's like you don't have a choice but to become an artist if that's what is happening to you. Mm, mm, Very deep, very deep. So, Vanessa, I'm going to give you three phrases that I was able to pluck from your teen years. And I'm going to tell you the phrase, and I want you to comment on it. Are you ready? (laughs) Okay. Miss Talented Teen Competition. I'm not talking about that. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? That was like a horrible decision. I don't even know why I did that. Probably because I was bored. I had just come here. And I was just like, okay, sure. Like, they asked me to do it, and I was like, okay, whatever. I'll do that. Fine. But, yeah, that is not – like, I'm not a pageant person. And I think I was, like, in one pageant ever in my life besides that, and it was the Little Miss African American pageant. And that was, like, a million years ago. And I actually got really far into that. You know how pageants are in the States, like that Jean Benet kind of thing, where it's, like, real quick? Yeah. Yeah. So that was what that was. But, again, like, we did that one thing, and then my mom was like, yeah, this is not for us. And then we just never did it again. And then I came here, and I did that, which, I mean, it was fun, and it did help me create some connections with other girls, like the other girls that were in the show, and that was nice. But that's not something that I would ever say, like, that does, that, it does not fit with my brand. <laughs> Your personal brand? <laughs> yes, my, my personal brand, established in 1985 to present. <laughs> I don't feel like pageantry, that's just not my thing. You know what I mean? So, next phrase, or, or, or next thing. Apple Theater. Oh, Wow. 
So Apple Theater was like Anguilla's first official theater company for kids. And I joined that because, again, there were limited creative opportunities here during that period of time. And I loved Apple Theater. That was like a great summer program. It was a really great project. I had a lot of fun. I had never done musical theater before. And I had done like, you know, acting lessons and whatever when I was in LA, but I'd never really done theater. And it really actually made me feel like I would enjoy doing musical theater because I can sing and I can act. And I, I kind of started thinking like, oh, maybe I could like go to New York and do this. And that was something that I don't think I would have thought about had I never gone into Apple Theater. So I do think Apple Theater was great. And that for sure helped me out in terms of like making friends and making connections in Anguilla with other people that were excited about art like I was. Okay. And last one, the Leeward Islands Debate Competition. Oh my God. Best ever. Best memories ever. LIDC is like, that was like my best part of my high school experience for sure. Loved LIDC. And being a debater again was something that I never thought I would be. And um, I was really good at that. Like I'm, I mean, I still, I coach the team even now, but um, I loved LIDC and I have made friendships with people in other islands that I still have today because of LIDC. So that was a great networking opportunity. It was really great for my development in terms of um, learning about topics that I probably would have never read about otherwise. And obviously solidifying my ability to argue which apparently I'm supposed to be really great at. <laughs> <laughs> and you did quite well. You uh, got best speaker, if if my research yeah. is correct. Yeah, I got best best overall speaker and best speaker. Um, I was good at LADC. I was I was great at that. I mean, I love that. And just the other day, one of my friends in Montserrat from LADC, who I beat, he was like toying around on Facebook talking about how he has to like come here. Because we need to have another debate, and he's going to win this time. Like, I mean, that's why. Like, those are the kind of friendships that LIDC fostered. So, for sure, that was like probably the best part of high school for me was being a debater. Awesome. Now, switching gears a little bit, tell us about your music days, both doing gigs on the island um, at the different resorts, etc., and your foray into the professional realm. I know that you did a lot of demos, and at one point in time, it was that was a trajectory. It wasn't going to be novelist or poet. It was going to be a professional singer, and you were, did some stuff in New York. Tell us about that journey. So, gosh, like the way you're like laying out these areas of my life is kind of interesting for me because I I've never even really come like parceled them out this way in such a linear way. That's yeah, that's that what actually, we do. that's what we do. Apparently it is. <laughs> that was a part of my life that it's funny because right now I think about the fact like what if that had actually happened? Like how different would my life be? Um, all right. So that was something that I was exploring doing. Obviously in Anguilla, I worked with some local artists like again, because you know, you're, you're a creative and you're trying to find that creative energy and you're looking for those people that are like you. So I used to hang out a lot with like Tehran Hodge Cardi, um, Dale Saunders, Drac, 
um, who else? Like people that were into music, people that were into into working on projects, and um, we used to do a lot of projects together. And I think one time, even I had gone to Antigua to work with this producer there called Just Bus and um, Chosen Sounds. And those guys, I mean, like I still talk to them to this day. But like it was, it was something that I was kind of looking into doing, and I enjoyed it. Like I said, anything that's creative, that's artistic, I'm going to enjoy. And then um, I didn't start gigging here, though, until after all of that. And I had the opportunity to go to New York and to record some demos with some really good producers, um, people that like worked with like Mariah Carey and all that kind of stuff. And um, all of that kind of got truncated because of the fact that I did not want to leave my child. As a new mom. Well, yeah. I mean, the thing is, is that when I went to record the demos in New York, the first thing was like the people that had kind of discovered me down here, they wanted me to come up there by myself. And my daughter was like a year old at the time. And I said that I, I wasn't leaving her. I'd never even been away from her, not even for like a night. So because at that time I was gigging locally, but I used to like bring her to the gigs, like in her car seat. And then like a waitress or somebody would watch her while I did my set because I just was like, I, that was just me as a mom. Like I just didn't want to leave her with anybody. And, um, so when they offered me that opportunity, I said that I'm not coming up there unless I'm bringing my child. And so they, um, they like arranged, uh, like an au pair while I was up there and all that kind of stuff. And I took her with me and I did all that and created those projects and they were, you know, they were shopped out. And then the thing is, is like they, they wanted, so two things happened. One was that they wanted me to, to come up there for an extended period of time, not with my daughter, to put in, like, the work that needed to be put in. And then the second thing that happened was the recession. And so the financial backers for the project were affected by the recession. So that was one um, bump. And then the other bump was the fact that I actually didn't want to leave. I didn't want to leave my child. And I said, like, either it was going to work like that or it wasn't. And then that's just kind of how that went. And that that's something that was like a, a chapter of my life that I decided I wasn't going to pursue because I felt that it would take me too far away from that new journey of motherhood. And I did not want to look back and regret that. So, yeah. Right. Because you, you were invited to the Grammys, um, or you had the chance to attend, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, I did. But I was going to have to leave her behind. And I just, I just couldn't, I couldn't do that. To me, it was almost metaphorical because it was like saying, you know, you are not a consequence and I'm still going to go and pursue all the things I was going to pursue had you not arrived in my life. And I didn't feel right doing that. So I didn't, I didn't go. Is music still important in your life? On some level? It is. I recently stopped gigging. So I officially was doing gigs in Anguilla like three, four nights a week. Every season. Since 2007. Ooh. Until basically this year. It's a nice little run. Yeah. I kind of, I mean, it was a mutual decision sort of with me and my partner. And also because I'm just tired, Kristen. Like, it's like... 
having to go and sing in the hotels every weekend, it gets old. I mean, it, it might be for some people, but for me, it just was like, I could never have any kind of social life because I always had to remember, oh, I have a gig later. So it's like, you're not going out to the beach on a Saturday to have a lot of fun with your friends because you have a gig at like seven. So you, you don't want to be tired or, or like whatever. And then also I was becoming busier in my career in education and it was taking me away from the home too much in terms of teaching at night and also gigging at night. There were some weeks where I only had like one or two nights home and that also was not working out family wise. And, um, it just was, it's a, it was a lot of work, and I felt that for me, not that I wouldn't go back into doing that, but, I mean, I've done some private stuff. That is different, and to me, it's it's easier to do the private stuff than it is to be doing, like, regular gigs. So, yeah, 13 years, basically, of playing in the hospitality industry consistently. It was a long time. I mean, there must have been some fun times as well. Oh, for sure. Like, I don't want to make it sound like I didn't enjoy it. Of course I enjoyed it. But I think as I've gotten older and my, if I did not have a career outside of music, then yeah, totally. I would be doing that. But teaching all day and then having to go play a gig is just really hard mentally for me. Yeah. And it's like you're on all day because you're like on a stage when you're teaching and then you're on a stage when you're gigging. And it was just a lot. And I feel like that was kind of affecting me negatively. And I decided not to think of it as like, you know, how much money am I not making, but rather look at my mental health and my physical health and just how I felt and, you know, spending time with my kids instead of always being at a gig or whatever. Tell, tell us about your obsession with Beyonce. Beyonce's first fan and no one can at me on that. I don't want to hear from anyone else. <laughs> so <laughs> I cannot believe you asked that. So like when when this child no, from like girl time, I have been a Beyonce fan. From girl <laughs> time you were a Beyonce fan. Yeah, because I like saw them on that show and stuff, and I just always liked her the best out of all four of them. And you know many people don't even know what girl time is? I know. That's another, like, thing, like the fax machine <laughs> and Kinko's. So I have just always liked Beyonce. Like, I used to have, like, all these. I used to, to get all the, like, magazines and pull out the, the pictures from Destiny's Child interviews and, like, <laughs> stick them up on my wall. Yeah, and, like, um, you know how they used to have the insert in the CD and sometimes that unfolded into a poster? Into a poster, yeah. Mm-hmm. I had those too. I have every Destiny's Child album, for sure. Even like even the Men in Black soundtrack with their song that kind of pushed them out into being like what we know now as Destiny's Child, I have that. So a little known fact about me is that I am a huge Beyonce fan from the jump, not a bandwagonist. I really love Beyonce as an artist and a performer. I, and, I, I believe um, you said girl time. Yeah. No, like, she's like, I've always liked her. Like, you know, like, it's a, it's a, it's a band, and then you have like, the one person that you like, and she was always my one person. So it was just crazy that she became the Beyonce that she is now. Because that wasn't, I mean, yeah, they used to always put her in the center back then, and it was kind of obvious that she was the, the lead one. But that could have gone any direction. Right. So I guess you, you can say you have an eye for talent. You should be an A&R. 
Definitely. <laughs> they need to hire me. Like, because obviously, like, I knew Beyonce before she was Beyonce. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I was, like, so stupid. But, yeah, that was, that was, yeah, that's my Beyonce obsession, which I still have. But I don't have any posters up anymore, obviously. But, yeah, still love me some Beyonce. Who, who are some of your other uh, favorite artists? Mm, you mean, like, in general, in, in life? In general. No, in, in music, yeah. When it comes All to right, music. I, li- I like Lana Del Rey. Um... I like Florence and the Machine. Mm. I like Alanis Morissette. There's your 90s kid coming out. Yeah. Um, I like, no doubt, more 90s kid. Yeah. Um, who else, boy? I mean, like, all that 90s rock stuff was my jam for sure. And, um, like, right now, um... I like Black. I like his projects. I think they're really good. Um, Joyner Lucas. Um, I mean, I'm more of like a lyrical person. Right, as a writer. Yeah. Nipsey Hussle. Like, I actually didn't know anything about Nipsey Hussle. My students put me onto him. And because they actually came to me and they were like, I think that you'll like this artist. And then when I listened to it, it actually made me really happy as a teacher because it meant that I've shown them enough about writing that they can recognize it elsewhere and then make the connection that this would be something that I would like. And I love that transmission of, of knowledge that goes both ways between teacher and student. And so, yeah, they actually put me on a Nipsey Hustle and they put me on a Joyner Lucas because of the kind of themes that I talk about in the classroom and the type of writing that I talk about in the classroom. Um, I also was like a big Lil Wayne fan, Eminem, Jay-Z, Kanye, you know, I mean, you know the music I like. Obviously, we have to say this for your listeners, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I could tell you right now who is on my my playlist. Let's see. Because I, I make a playlist every like quarter of the year with the, the date. And that way I have like these playlists that kind of make me remember those times, if uh, that makes sense. That's yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a good idea. So I'll do, yeah, I have like spring 2019, summer 2019, fall, winter 2019. So right now I'm working on um, spring 2020. I guess now it would be spring, summer. So who have I got on here? I've got, because what I like to do is I put my Apple Music on new music for you. And I let it play like what Apple thinks I want to hear. And a lot of times it pulls in people that I don't even know, I've never heard about, and then I like their work, and then I go and I kind of explore them, which I guess is the point. So right now on here I have Brianna Cash, Maya B, Carly Page, San Holo, Felix Cartel, Don Diablo, and someone called Karsten, and Nobody Cares. I don't even know these artists, but those are songs that have popped up in that playlist that I like. And I added them to my playlist. So those are like people that I would go kind of explore more about. Just to go back a little bit, Vanessa, you were given a journal with a cat on it by your mom. Was <laughs> was that the, uh, the the book that actually opened the door for writing for you? Yes. And I actually could go right now on my bookshelf and pull it off. <laughs> <laughs> I was given this journal with a cat on it. It was like one of those things that you probably bought at like the 99 cent store or something or save on. And 
my mom gave it to me because my mom always was really big on journaling and she had these black and red journals that she used to write in. They were like bound and um, she would write in them all the time. And she had like, you know, they were like chronological and those were really important to her. And so she always used to talk to me about how it can be very cathartic writing things down sometimes. And so she bought me that journal when I was like a little last thing. I think I was probably like six, maybe seven. And um, I started writing in it first as a journal. And I realized that I did not have the same diligence as my mother to journal every evening. And I just would write in it like whenever I felt like it. And then I would start writing and I realized that if you wrote, and this was me as like a first grade child, I realized that if you wrote things down and you like moved them around on the page, they would become poetry. And that was how I started writing poetry. So yes, I've been writing poetry since I was like seven because of that journal with the cat on it. And I still have it to this day. And that was the very beginning of Vanessa, the writer. Now, a few years ago, you decided to start a blog. Why did you decide to start a blog in the first place? And um, sort of, what are some of the themes? What are, what are some of the themes that you explore in your blog? So I started my blog on the anniversary of my friend Alex Horsford's death because I feel like he was someone. He was younger than me, and I never thought that he would die before me. And I felt during that year of him having died that the one thing that stuck out to me the most was that like Alex died on his way to work right. and, and it's like you could die on your way to work and you don't think that he probably left his house that day. He didn't think that he got in his car and he didn't think that, and he was driving and he didn't think that. And he probably didn't even think that up until the point that he was dying. So that really struck me that there are so many things that we put off in life because we think we have time and it's just the most cliche thing ever. But I really think that you don't know what kind of time you have. And I always wanted to have a blog. And I used to, I used to do this thing with my students where at the beginning of the year, we would write down our resolution for the year. And so that year, the year that Alex died, um, I had done that with my kids, the resolution thing. And mine was to do a blog. And then that whole year went by and I didn't do the blog. And so when the anniversary of Alex's death came around, I was like, you know what? Why am I not doing the blog? And I actually had kind of written it on my thing that I put up on the bulletin board with the students as an accountability because nothing will hold you more accountable than students. They will ask you every day. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Because you're holding them accountable for everything. So it's like, if you want to get something done, you just tell your students, like, I want to do this. And they will always ask you about it. And so that'll make you do it. So, you know, when you tell a student that you want to do something, it holds you accountable because they'll ask you. And you'll do it either because they're asking you or you'll do it because you know that you'll, you're going to lose credibility if you don't do it. Because how are you going to tell them, like, reach your goals and accomplish the things you want to accomplish? And then you're over here, like, lollygagging. So that year went by, and I didn't start the blog. And I kept making all these excuses about why I wasn't doing it. I hadn't outlined it yet. I hadn't written enough yet, whatever, whatever. I didn't know what I wanted to write about. And 
on the anniversary of Alex's death, I just decided, you know what, I'm going to publish a blog post and that means I will have started my blog because I really let that whole year go by and I didn't do it. So I started my blog on that day. Um, and the first thing I wrote about was like, not even that great. I think I just wrote about like, cause I wasn't sure the direction that I wanted my blog to go. So I think I wrote something that was more like for tourists, like things to do in Anguilla for New Year's Eve or something like that. And, um, and then I just started writing and I just, I never, and it's actually probably not the best blog advice. Usually for a blog, you, you're supposed to choose like a theme or something that you're going to revolve everything around because you build a following based on that. So like, if you're going to write a blog about like auto mechanics, you're going to get a bunch of people that are into auto mechanics following you. So you don't want to all of a sudden start doing cooking articles. So my blog, though, I don't follow any of those rules, and I just write about whatever I feel like writing about at that space and time, and that is why it's called a lifestyle blog. So it's more like a Vanity Fair type thing where it's anything. Like, you might read something political. You might read something tourist-related. You might read something about parenting. You might read something self-reflective. You might read some of my, my fiction work. Um, it's just kind of like whatever I feel like. Now, recently, you got some very exciting news. You were published. Indeed. I was published by Quelly Journal that I'm actually really excited about because they are a platform that focuses on female black writers. And I think that it's it makes me happy to be considered in that group of people and as a voice for black stories. And so... Um, I had submitted, they had a call for publication and I had submitted a short story and, and they picked it up. And so you can read that on their blog. It's called The Secret in the Mangoes and it is a West Indian story. You are also working on a novel. How's that going? I am. And if any of my students are listening to this, they're like, yeah, she's been working on that novel. Cause that was another one of those accountability things. Um, my class of my 5A band one class from a couple years ago, they are my like original novel pushers because they would just ask me every day, how's the book? How's the book? Even to this day, some of them text me, how's the book? And it's been like a couple years. So I was working on the novel and then the hurricane happened and that kind of set me back a little bit. And then to be honest, for me, writing is something that all right, so the way I work in general, even when I was getting my degrees, I will, and oh my God, so my students are going to hear this and they're just going to be like, what a fraud. I am the biggest procrastinator. Like I tell my kids not to do that, but I do that really badly. And recently I watched a TED talk about procrastinators and all of a sudden it became clear to me that that's just actually my process. I am actually not procrastinating. And I know that sounds really stupid. But the TED Talk is talking about how procrastinators work. And I was watching it and I was like, oh my God, this is me. This is me. That is how I work. So I will know I have to do something and then I just won't do it at all until like the night before. And then I'll do it. And that is actually how the story that Quelly Journal published. I had um, a novel that I had been working on because I'm working on about like four different writing projects simultaneously depending on what I feel like putting my energy into. What are these projects? <laughs> Do tell. 
Well, I'll tell the one that the character um, Veronica for Secrets on the Mangoes came from. That is a, a novel that I'm writing, and that character is a character in that novel. When Quelly Journal put out the call for submissions, they said they wanted stories from the perspective of little black girls. So they're 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 filling that void in literature where we. We do not have stories that are told from the perspective of black girls. We don't have stories that black girls can read and see part of their own journey of self. We don't have that. We have stories. We have their stories of black boys. There might be stories where a black girl is a peripheral character, but they wanted stories like where we had a, a significant black girl voice. So I didn't have anything that fit that. And I started thinking about it through my procrastination process, which meant that it's something that I was like running back and forth in the back of my head, but I was not actively working on, but yet I was still thinking about it, if that makes sense. And all of a sudden I was like, I could take that Veronica character and I could write about her as a little girl because I already knew that character. And that is a part of the writing process that I teach in my classes, which is creating a character and knowing them so deeply that you can insert them into any situation and write it because you already know your character. So therefore, you know how they're going to react to things. So I already knew Veronica as a character because I had created her and I knew the type of person she was. All I had to do was reimagine her as a 12-year-old girl and then write her story from then. And so the piece that I wrote for Quelly Journal would follow into actually that novel if I ever finish it because it gives you some of that backstory and it gives you insight into Veronica as an adult, which is the person that she is in the book I'm writing. So that was kind of like that process, but I didn't write that story until like two days before the submission deadline. And I just sat down and I wrote the story. It's like 6,000 words long. And I just sat and wrote it two days before it was due because that's my process. And I've come to terms with that, that perhaps I'm not necessarily a procrastinator. And that's just my process. I mean, that was how I was at university as well for my undergraduate and my graduate degrees. I would just not write the paper until like the day before it was due. And I would just produce the work. And I feel like my process involves just having it in my mind and it, it creates itself. It's just so difficult for me to explain this. And when I am ready and I sit down in front of the computer or I sit down with a pen, I just write it and then it's just there and it exists. And that was the story that I submitted to Quelly. And um, I wrote it like two days before. And then I printed it. I sat it down for a few hours. I read it over. I fixed all my little errors that I might have had. And then I gave it to two of my work colleagues who are just like regular readers because I wanted to see what they thought about it as a regular reader and not as like a, like a, like a literary goddess, just as two black women that would be the reader that would read the story on Quelly Journal. And they both read it and they gave me feedback and I kind of adjusted things based on. So, I mean, does that mean I'm going to write the entire novel in two days? It could. It also could not. Do I recommend doing that? Also, probably not. But would it sound great in my memoir when I'm like 70? Yes. It sounds very Ernest Hemingway to write a whole novel in two days. But um, I have, the book is there and it, it does need to be completed. And I will say that I do not allocate enough time to my own writing as I should. I do have a lot going on. 
but that's not an excuse because great writers, they make their time to write their story, but it's completely outlined. It's just a matter of me finishing it. I mean, I've probably got maybe like 50,000 words down maybe ish of that one. And that's the, the novel that I plan on, on releasing first. Like that's the novel that when I say I'm working on my novel, that's the novel that's in my head, not the other three, but that one. So this year I have to finish that because if I don't finish that this year, I'm going to stop calling myself a writer because it's just ridiculous. Like, honestly, like I need to stop doing this to myself. Writer's right. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I, I am writing though, but I'm just not writing that. You know what I mean? Like I'm writing poetry. I'm writing my blog. I'm writing stuff for work. I'm just not writing that. So I need to kind of do some reflection and figure out why I'm not writing that and what the reason is that I can find time to do other things but not write that. Like the other night I listened to two Yale lectures on Freudian philosophy and psychoanalysis. So how did I have three hours of time to do that and not work on my book, you know? So that's something I think I need to kind of figure out in my own creative energy as to why I'm not doing that. It's so much easier to consume content than to create content. Yeah, but the thing is, is like, I'm there like listening to this and writing lecture notes. Like I'm in the class, you know? So it's like, why am I doing that? (laughs) (laughs) And the the reason I did that is because I watched the show Freud on Netflix and I was just like really interested in that. And then I went and I started listening to psychoanalysis lectures for psychology majors and became interested in that. And so, I mean, you know how that is. And you just fall into this like YouTube rabbit hole. Oh, the rabbit and hole. You're, uh, oh, yeah. So, but yeah, I am going to finish that novel this year. And like, if I don't, I am not going to even have an if I don't, because I will, because I've been working on that novel for three years off and on. And it's ridiculous that it's not finished yet. And I need to just put my foot down and allocate time every day where I spend an hour writing. Vanessa, what are some of the themes that you enjoy covering in your writing? In my writing, I enjoy covering race relations because being biracial, that's like a big part of my life and my identity. Um, Almost every day, I kind of have to deal with that clash of identity. And so I deal with that in my novel. I deal a lot with the stories that I didn't hear or see growing up, and that is interracial relationships or biracial people. They were not prevalent in stories when I was growing up. So those are themes that I look at. I also write a lot about socioeconomic issues. And I think I look at just in general, like the West Indian experience, because it has always really fascinated me. And again, I also feel that in modern literature, in commercial literature, that is a voice that's missing. And I look at, in general, relations between, again, this ties into race and probably the West Indian experience, but looking at that dynamic of tourist versus local. I explore that a lot in a lot of my writing. A lot of my poetry has explored that. And the novel that I'm working on, it explores that as well. Speaking of deeper themes in writing, you were able to meet your literary hero a couple of years ago. Tell us about that. That was incredible. I was asked by the Anguilla Literary Committee to open for Dan Brown. He was doing a fundraiser for Lit Fest, and it was a ticketed event. 
that people came to to basically sit down and listen to him talk about his work. And they contacted me to open for him with some of my own work. Which, of course, I was like, oh my god, because I've read all his books and I grew up I grew up reading his stuff and I loved the way that he infuses history and knowledge into his fiction and the amount of time that each one of those novels consumes with like the research and all of that. I just really respect him and his writing is really amazing as far as commercial literature goes. And so just in general, I just always, his stuff really resonated with me as a teenager. So opening for him was like amazing. And then what was even more amazing was that after I opened for him and I read one of my pieces, he came up to me after the event and was like, oh, you're Vanessa. Um, and he, he wanted to talk to me. And that was like, that was like a major fangirl moment in my life. And he asked me for a copy of the poem. And then um, he came to a couple of my gigs different nights after that. And we sat and talked about writing and about literature and just about like life in general. And that was really amazing to me because I feel like as an artist, you know, you think you have good, you think you have something good and you go back and forth between this art that I have made is amazing or this art that I have made is horrible. I am not an artist. And I think it is that way for every artist, whether you're a musician, whether you're a painter, whether you're a writer. Truer words have never been spoken. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, I'll have things that I read that I've written, and I'm like, this is absolutely terrible. How am I a writer? And for a writer that you respect, and that is like, that has a huge, like, machinery behind him in terms of writing and publishing and film credits, for that person to tell you your work is amazing. Can I have a copy of it? It really made me feel that my internal conflict with whether or not I am a good writer was very, very, very validating. Yes. It was incredibly validating. And I'm not saying that that doesn't mean that I respect the compliments of people around me that have read my work and love my writing. I get compliments from people about my writing a lot, but the thing is, and it's like, it's not even something to insult the regular person. When someone that is considered a master at the craft tells you that you are also a master at the craft, that's incredible. And that also happened to me again when um, I met Nicole Dennis-Ben, who is an amazing writer. And she writes um, books about the lesbian experience, about the black experience, about the Caribbean experience. She also heard some of my work at LitFest and came up to me and told me that she thought it was amazing. And I had never read her work before. And after that LitFest, I read her work and I reached out to her and like, you know, told her how much I appreciated her voice in the literary scene because her work is incredible. So again, for someone to tell you that your work is incredible and you also respect their work, that makes you feel better about what you're producing as an artist. And so those moments with with published authors that are much greater than all than I am for them to tell me that my work is good it's meaningful to me and um do I think my work is good yes sometimes I do there are some pieces that I've written whether it's poetry or whether it's um essays on my blog that I've had a lot of people come up and tell me about um more recently I have a couple pieces on my blog that I definitely get people telling me 
that they like often. And that is one called The Things We Lost in a Storm and another one called Black Like We. And it's about teaching To Kill a Mockingbird to West Indian students. And um, those two pieces, I get a lot of people telling me, like even people I don't even know um, on the street or tourists, because a lot of tourists, um, they follow me on Instagram or they read my blog. They will walk up to me and tell me like, oh, Vanessa, you're Vanessa. You know, I really enjoyed this piece. And that feels good. Because as a writer, what you're making, it doesn't even exist. It doesn't mean anything. If someone's not reading it and bringing their experience to your writing to bring it to life. So for people to read my writing, bring their own experiences to it and reflect on it and then come and tell me that it's good. It's, it's meaningful to me. That's incredible. Now, does teaching help you as a writer? You mentioned your students several times during this interview. <laughs> Yes. So teaching definitely helps me as a writer because when you spend all day telling someone how to do something, it makes you better at it. So as a teacher, I am able to examine writing often and see the mistakes that are made. I'm also able to interact with people all the time and that helps inform my own writing process. And so when I'm talking about the writing process to my students, whether it's teenagers or adults, that helps me reflect on my writing process and inform my own process in a better way. It has made me more organized as a writer because the way I teach the writing process is it's linear, but it's not linear. It's linear, but it allows for unlinear deviances. And that's, that's just how I write. So that's how I teach writing. And it has helped me a lot. It has helped me because it kind of clues me in on how to create something to stay within that amount of words that interest a person and and here I'm talking to like for example about my blog and to keep things at a flow and a pace that people will want to continue reading because the average reader on the internet becomes bored very quickly so you have to like entertain them and kind of keep them there and that has been something that I've been able to kind of create for myself through teaching and also because as a teacher if you're a good teacher, you're always reading and learning more about your subject. And I am always reading and learning more about the writing process. I listen to lectures about writing, all sorts of stuff, so that I can inform my students better. So that has also helped me because that's a learning process. And I've infused a lot of those things into my own writing. Quite interesting. Quite, quite interesting. Um, and obviously your students mean a lot to you. You mentioned your poetry several times uh, as we've been speaking what you didn't mention is that you're kind of the Michael Jordan of the local Malyahana poetry competition in Anguilla. Um, are, are you still keeping score of the number of times you've won this thing? <laughs> I'm cracking up. Um, I'm not. I actually stopped entering as of last year because I just felt like I had maybe outgrown it. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean it in a way that I felt that maybe... And the thing is, the way they judge that thing, it's like anonymous, you know? So they don't even know who's writing their reading. And I was just always winning, and it became a thing where I felt like maybe that wasn't for me anymore. Maybe I had transcended that, although the Malihana Poetry Competition, and I had been entering that since, like, the very first year I probably have won that thing like 10 times, maybe more. Um, 
I don't know because I actually haven't kept track. But I stopped entering it last year because I felt like I needed to step aside and give space on that platform for more emerging writers. Also, last year, I began teaching a professional continuing course at University of the West Indies Open Campus on creative writing. And I wanted to encourage my students in that class to enter the competition. And I could not rightfully do that if I was also entering the competition. So that was why I stepped back last year. And then this year, I just decided, you know what, I'm not going to enter anymore because I felt that winning all the time, it wasn't really benefiting me as a writer anymore and it wasn't benefiting other writers because I had had people come up to me in the community and say like they don't want to enter because I always win and I didn't like that because I want people to put their work out there so I just figured that I need to put my energy into bigger things that I have probably outgrown the competition and as much as I love it I encouraged all my students to enter my daughter came second this year and um she came first I think another time and yeah it's it's you know that's not my platform anymore and I'm always going to support the Malihana poetry competition and I will always support others entering it but I just don't feel that I should enter it anymore how does it feel to be a mom uh as a creative you know you mentioned that your mom was a creative and she passed on things to you are there any things that you're making sure that you pass on to your kids yes and because I'm a teacher, I also try to pass that on to everyone else's children because other children that are not raised in households with creatives, they don't get that. So these things that I'm going to share with you that I tell my children are also things that I tell my students always. The first one is that whatever you spend your time doing when you don't have to do anything else, that is your passion. So when your life is not scheduled, when you're not at work, when you're not at school, when you're not being told to do something, I like that. what, <laughs> yeah, what do you do with that time? And that right there tells you who you are and what direction you want to take your life in. And I teach that to my, my daughter and my son, and I teach that to my students because you need to, if, sometimes it causes them to reevaluate. Like my daughter, um, last October, she reevaluated how she spent her free time. And she realized that she was not spending it in a creative way, or in a way that furthered her growth. And those are the two ways that I think that people should spend their free time. But when you're not being told what to do, what is your first thing that you start doing? And that should be something that's either giving creativity to the world or furthering your own growth as an individual. And um, so I teach them that. And I do find, okay, so growing up, my mother did not have technology in the home. We did not have television because she felt that television was going to keep me from using my creative energy. So when I had free time, I could read, I could paint, I could write, I, I could go outside and explore. You know, I could do that kind of stuff. I feel sometimes very conflicted about the amount of screen time that I allow my kids to consume because that was not how I was raised. But I also feel that this is a different time and it is important as social creatures to be able to interact with the society around you. And sometimes 
You have to consume screen time in order to do that because those commonalities that people share, like, oh, did you watch this episode of this show or have you seen this podcast or did you play this game? Those make you have connections. So it's like, and then, of course, I get in arguments with my son about it because he loves to watch gamers on YouTube. Like his thing to do is to like go on some famous YouTube gamers channel and watch their tutorials and stuff and then go on the game and do it himself. And as a creative, you might look at that and be like, well, where's the creative energy there? But for Harrison, his thing is he wants to start his own channel. So he is trying to like look at all these people's stuff and he says like, I'm going to have my own YouTube channel and I'm going to be doing the same thing. And that's creative right there, you know, and that's something that he's passionate about. I mean, the other day I asked him what he wanted to do when he grows up. He wants to be a gamer and I am not the parent that's going to be like, that's not a real career because that is a real career. Yes, like these is. people are making millions, yes, millions is. of dollars. And what better way to make millions of dollars than to do it in a, in a way that it excites you and you're passionate about. He's very passionate about gaming. So of course I will facilitate that. And of course monitor the amount of time he spends doing that. But again, if he had said to me, I want to be a philosopher and he was over here writing philosophy, I would not be telling him, hey, get off of that book. So he says that he wants to be a gamer. He wants to have a gamer YouTube channel and I will definitely facilitate that for him. Another way that as a creative I put that on my children is by encouraging them to be introspective about the world around them. I definitely have passed on the whole photographic eye about finding art in things. And for my daughter, who is turning 14, I've made it very important for me to teach her that, you know, as a woman, that ways that you can express yourself creatively that sometimes the patriarchal society might shame or put you down for that that's not right and that there is like a creative way to express yourself your sexuality who you are as a person that cannot be condemned or seen as negative and I think those are kind of ways that I try to put out there on my Instagram where I use my Instagram as a funnel to my blog because a lot of my Instagram followers that's my blog following and my Instagram, I post a lot of photos of myself in bathing suits that might be seen as sexual or whatever. But for me, that is showing other young girls that you can be smart and sexy and you can be an educator and you can still have sexuality because I think growing up, we always just kind of assumed like our teachers didn't have sex and that was just what it was. And I think that that's a wrong outlook for but people they to have, have but on they life. Had kids. And I want... Right, but we never thought of them as sexual entities. No, I know. <laughs> like what you I didn't mean. look I at my mean. my teachers. So, so for me, it's like I want to put out there that a young woman can be educated and well spoken, and still be a sexual creature. And that's not some; those are not two things that you have to pick. Like either I'm sexy or. I'm educated and well-spoken. And so that's kind of like what I put out there with that. And I'm happy that my daughter is able to see that you can have ownership over your body and you can have ownership over how that body is seen in the public. I just find it fascinating that you were a child actress providing content for people to consume via television, but your mom didn't want you watching television. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That's like fascinating the, to me. 
<laughs> some of the stuff I was in, like, I didn't even see, like, some of the commercials and stuff. Like, I didn't even see because we didn't even have TV. Because you know how um, how Steve Jobs didn't give his kids iPads? Right. Yeah, it's like that. Yeah. It's like that. Understood. It's Understood. That, yeah, it's like other people are are consuming this, but it's like oppressing other ways that they might express themselves. I have seen, like, I've had students that I know they watch way too much television because they are very hard to entertain in an academic way because TV is just always giving you that stimulation, stimulation, stimulation. And when I say TV here, I'm being old school, but I'm not, that covers, like, all streaming. I'm talking about, like, all platforms for video. Screen, screen time, um, screen time. Yeah, so any kind of screen time entertained by learning in a traditional and even in a non-traditional way and that is why you have kids that have a hard time focusing in class because they are so bombarded with colors and lights and changes of scene like the average cartoon changes their scene every like eight seconds and the brain the brain actually is not wired for that so when you are always consuming content that changes the scene every eight seconds, you're actually dumbing down your brain's ability to absorb that content in longer period. Yes, and, and know, that's a problem. Sesame Street was explored um, for the for the same reason. Some people said the scenes would change too uh, quickly. So yes, yes, it's something to consider, I guess. Uh, I mean, the catch twenty two is that you want people to watch your program. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah. But but too much screen time definitely can stifle creativity because when you read, I mean, I've I've had a little bit of time uh, uh, teaching students as well in terms of writing, and right. what you find is students sometimes regurgitate. They'll give you a story. And you can tell it was from a TV show that they watched. And so. Well, that actually has been happening throughout the ages of writing. People cannot create art that is not informed by art they have consumed. Right. So you will end up with that. But the problem is that, and this happens to every society in its modern time. Right now, we look at it as, oh, they're watching these shows. So the only kind of story they know how to write is these shows. But when I was 13, I read a lot of Nancy Drew. So the only story I ever wrote was a mystery story. No one was saying, oh, she reads so much Nancy Drew. It's informing her creative process. Because we look at screen time as negativity. What I try to do in my classroom is turn that around. If I see a student that's watching, let's say, Pretty Little Liars, and they're infusing that into their work. That is intertextuality. That is actually a literary device that people have acclaimed when you are using someone else's art to infuse in your work. When I when I see that happening, and I try to watch a lot of the young adult shows so that I can talk in the classroom about the process, about plots and dynamics, because the plot arc in a TV show and the plot arc in a book are basically the same thing. So it's like... If the kids are not reading books, and I'm not the one out here forcing them to read books, I will provide books in my classroom. They are out and on every surface of my class. If a student picks a book up, which they will, if it's interesting, they'll read it on their own, and that's great. But I'm not going to be like, you have to read this book, because that creates a negative idea of reading for the student. So if they prefer to watch television shows, fine. We're still going to talk about story arks. No, I, I better I, need. So I, I definitely agree with you on that. 
my issue is that sometimes TV is they they consume uh, TV shows so much that the world that actually exists around them tends to disappear, and so they're not they're not drawing story or character or plot from the world around them. Their new reality becomes what they see as opposed to what they're living. Right, and that is another way that our West Indian voice has been stifled in literature in modern times because a lot of times the stories that we're seeing on television and the stories that we're reading they're not caribbean stories exactly. and if they are exactly. if they if they are a caribbean story it's like from like the 60s so that's still not our current caribbean story and that is what i'm working on filling with the the books that i'm writing is writing our modern west indian identity so that children and adults can read that and they can see it and they can understand it and they can find something that they identify with in it because we can't just sit down here as as west indians and watch tv shows about people set in boston that how is that helping us per, like perpetuate our culture it doesn't but we allow that to happen because of westernization so vanessa what's what's the best advice you can give to budding writers oh wow all right. The best advice I would give a budding writer is to write, obviously. <laughs> um, also, to make sure that you know the type of story that you're trying to tell. And this is my process. Some people don't have this process. But for me, I write down what that story is beforehand. So that thing that you might read on the back of a book that tells you what a book is about, like I basically write that for myself. So I know what I'm writing. And I kind of try to stick in there so that I, I maintain how I develop because I don't write in a chronological way. I'll write different areas of my book at different times and then fill in the pieces that need to connect those spaces. So I need to have my outline strong so that I make sure that I follow the right thing, that I'm dropping the right hints and clues in the book towards the end of it, like towards, towards whatever the finale is going to be. So, I mean, for me, that's my process because I like to write sections that I kind of have in my mind at that time. And maybe the way, if I was writing chronologically, I wouldn't get to that point yet. I don't write it that way. So I'll just sit down and be like, oh, this is the scene where they're like in the store arguing and I'll write that scene. And then I'll maybe write a different scene and then eventually I'll have filled in the gaps and it connects. So that's why for me, the outlining process is very important because I need to have that outline so that I stay tight and I stay on track because I'm not writing chronologically but that's my writing process some people have a different writing process the other thing I would say to do is to write your whole piece and then give it a few hours or a day and go back and read it and edit do not write and edit at the same time because that is going to hold you back. I agree. Yeah, you just get your whole thing out there. For me, it's hard to do as a teacher because I always want to like go back and read it over, but I have to force myself not to do that until like a certain end point. But um, yeah, and then the other thing I would say to do is to write about what you know is a very important adage in writing. And the thing is, it used to mean don't write about what you don't know. But if you want to write about what you don't know, just go learn about what you don't know. Because, and that's something like Dan Brown talked about. Like, if he wanted to write about something that he didn't know, he would just go do, like, a year's worth of research into it. And now he knows it. And now he can write about it. So 
I definitely say that because you don't want to create spaces in your novel that you can't fill in in a legitimate way because someone that does know those spaces will read your book. And will give and, you a review. <laughs> exactly. So you, you need to write about what you know. And I tell my students in Anguilla that. Like, you're in Anguilla. You have never been to California. Why is your story set in California? Because you're writing, like, things that don't connect. So if you want your story to be set in California, go learn about California learn about what the neighborhoods look like make it make sense because you cannot be writing about California and then calling things like a village like it, you can't do that so you just need to like go find out the things that you want to know and then you write about what you know regardless sound advice sound advice Vanessa now tell me what's the next big thing for Vanessa Croft well the next big thing for me um I recently made a few major life changes in terms of my personal life and also in terms of my professional life. And I have started my own company, which I'm very happy about, me and my partner. My partner and I have started Vibe Media House, and it is basically a creative agency. Although the word agency always makes me think there's like a big old office or something. <laughs> um and there's not. <laughs> there's not a big office. I mean, it's just everything's going to Zoom now anyway, so there's no need. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, coronavirus. Making my bedroom the office space and making that, like, a normal thing. But, no, um, he and I have started Vibe Media House. It's actually really funny how that worked because it's something that he's always wanted to do. All right, so I mean, I had kind of been doing it in an informal way in terms of people might hire me to write content for their website or people might hire me to write a blog post for them or they might hire me to come in and help out with some kind of project in like an artistic way. And then um, I met him and he is also like incredibly creative. I mean... It's so crazy because in the ways that I cannot possibly be creative, he's creative. Like, things that I can't do, he can do. So it actually works out really well. And so, um, yeah, so we started this company in January. And then we were kind of thrown off a tiny bit, not hugely, but a modicum by the whole lockdown situation. But not a lot, because again, it's a digital media company. So, you know, you're working on the internet, you're working on projects. We have a lot of really great projects that we've been working on. And so what we do is kind of come in and say, this is how you want your business to be seen. And this is how you want your business to feel towards your consumer. And we will create that for you. Or if you don't want to pay for that, we will teach you how to do that yourself. Because... My whole thing is about like empowering other people to be independent with their creativity and to be able to tell their story that way. So we work right now with about four different companies and we create their image and we create their vibe. And that's kind of the whole idea behind Vibe Media House is that your company, it needs to be solid in what it's putting out there to the consumer so that they can recognize your brand and not just recognize your brand, but feel what your brand means throughout everything whether it's color, words, lines, sound, it doesn't matter. So that's kind of the way we're looking at that, is that there is a gap, especially locally in that industry. And so all around, just kind of acting as a content creation conduit 
and guide for businesses and brands, both locally and abroad. So I'm really excited about what this year has in store for Vibe because so far things have been going really well and we are working with brands that we feel that we can bring that to them. So, you know, we're not exactly going out there working with every brand. It's brands that have approached us or we have approached that we believe that their entire like entity fits with what we can offer and vice versa. Sounds sounds incredible. Now, other than Vibe Media, I know Vibe Media is for the now and it's growing. What are the ultimate goals for Vanessa Croft? Like at the end of all this... What would you say, hey, I'm glad that that I accomplished blank. What is that blank? I probably would say that I, I need to publish the novel because that right there is my goal. And if I were to die now and I didn't do that, I would be unfulfilled because I've done a lot of things in my life. But that is the one thing that since I was a little girl, I always said I would do. So I have to do it. And obviously... I guess if I were to say my end goal right now, by the end of this year, I know that um, we want to see our company as a solid entity, and I want to see myself with a finished manuscript. And those are my two major goals professionally at the moment. Now, Vanessa, this is a segment in the in the interview that I call "The Planet Is Yours." I strap on my spacesuit and I dive into deep space, and I leave you on the planet alone. What is it that you would like to tell the people? The floor is yours. Right now, I'm still caught up imagining you in a spacesuit. Listen, so. I can hear you from out here. <laughs> I'm like, I'm too distracted by the fact that Crispin's wearing a spacesuit to realize that I'm on the planet by myself. <laughs> All right, so what do I want to tell people? Um, hmm. Words of inspiration, anything. Okay. You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this. Because I had a student reach out to me, a past student, um, and ask me if I thought when I got pregnant with my daughter, if I thought that that meant that my life was over and that I could not achieve my goals. And she asked me that because she is in a similar situation. And I think that's what one of her parents had said to her. And so... If I'm using this space to say anything to anybody, I would definitely say that that is absolutely not something that a young woman needs to think. Um, I got pregnant when I was 20, and I was on the precipice of all these great ideas I had for myself as a creative and as a creator, but having my daughter did not set that back at all. In fact, it actually motivated me more. It grounded me it gave me something to kind of orbit around if I'm going to continue using your space metaphor here. And it allowed me to say that I always had that home base, that it didn't really matter. Like I was doing all these other things, but then there was always her, you know? And so, and then I had my son and now it's like having children and having children early. I mean, people, I don't even think really remember it now, but I had my daughter before I had my career as an educator. Like I became that after and I became known as a writer after. So no, having a child early in life, it does not upset your plan. I think that the whole idea of having this list of things to accomplish as a human and having it be in a specific order, that's an archaic 
ideology that I think that we need to kind of banish from the way we operate because it just kind of sets people back. So yes, I am a mother and yes, I kind of did things out of order, but I think that in the end, I'm, I really do consider myself to be really happy and very much fulfilled with my career and that I can even say I have a career, you know, because sometimes people, they are my age, like I'm 35 and they don't have a career. They have a job. And I think for me right now, I have a career in education and um, my partner and I just started our business in terms of content creation, which is another area that I'm really passionate about and he's really passionate about. And I think that those are things that came into my life because of decisions that I made early on, like things, choices I made when I was 20 have affected things that are happening in my life now at 35. And I think that all of it is positive. I do not think that I was negatively affected. And I don't think I ever even felt that way at any point having become pregnant at 20. I don't think that it, it like took my life off course. I think it just put my life on a different course. And I'm actually really happy with that course. Incredible words, incredible words. How do we contact Vanessa Croft? Well, can I say like, like, subscribe, share? No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> all right. So you can contact me for business at vibemediahouse at gmail.com you can follow me on instagram at the only vanessa and you can read my blog at www.vanessaexplainsitall.com and yeah that's how you can contact me you can send me a dm on instagram um i'm really active on there i do my stories every day because like i said instagram is my platform that i use to bounce my blog off of so i stay active on instagram creating content and if you're interested in contacting me about working with your company for any sort of reason then yeah shoot me an email or a dm you can follow vibe on instagram too vibe media house and follow us on facebook awesome 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 vanessa croft i cannot thank you enough for joining us here on the planet it was an absolute pleasure Thank you so much, Kristen. I'm still thinking about you in this spacesuit. <laughs> I think I'm gonna, like I need that should be your logo, like you. But me like, in a, a spacesuit. Space yeah. Yeah. Yes. Definitely. Yes. Next season, of course. <laughs> Thank okay. you so much. Thanks for having me. I am Crispin Brooks, and this is Planet 30. Thank you for listening to this episode of Planet 30. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at OnPlanet30. Like us on Facebook.com slash Planet30. Our email address is OnPlanet30 at gmail.com. That's O-N-P-L-A-N-E-T-T-H-I-R-T-Y at gmail.com. For more information about Planet 30, visit our website, planet30.com. That's P-L-A-N-E-T-T-H-I-R-T-Y dot com.